0: Hello, and welcome to the Bobby Yaga Project. The Baba Project is a podcast and blog that focuses on the ritualized year folklore and history, lovingly researched and recorded by your hosts, Margo and Sonia. Hi, I'm Margo. I have a master's degree in American history with a focus on indigenous studies. And I'm Sonia, and I'm doing a PhD in medieval history.
1: Hello. Welcome to the Baba Yaga Project. Woo! This week we're talking about weddings. Getting married! Wedding season is here. <laughs> I mean it's been wedding season for like a minute. Yes, yeah, isn't it June? Isn't June when wedding season starts? Yeah, I think like peak primetime wedding season is like June, July, August. And that's usually I think nowadays they'll also charge you into September for prime time i telling you, it's, it's rough out there. But that's not what we're here to talk about today. Today, we're here to talk about weddings in the past. Old-timey wedding and marriage rituals. So, as per usual, I'm going to kick it off talking about the pre-modern slash early modern world, and then I'll hand it over to Margot to talk about, you know, she'll hop across the Atlantic, and we can have that conversation. So, let's start out back in ancient Greece. So the ancient Greek marriage celebration was typically like a 3-day ceremony with 3 different parts. So we're going to take that apart. Um also this is reflecting like Athens specifically, like this would have been done in other places in ancient Greece as well, but it seems like You know, this is sort of where a lot of the source material that I could find is from. So, day one is your proalia, which is the time when the bride would spend her last days with her mother, her female relatives, her friends, and would get prepared for the wedding. There was usually a feast at the bride's father's house. And the bride would make various offerings to Artemis, Athena, and Aphrodite. So, for example, she would that that is when she would make the sacrifice of her childhood toys to Artemis so it's this idea of okay you are putting away your toys you are giving them up to the goddess and now you are becoming you know a fully fledged adult woman in society the second day of it was called the gamos which was the actual wedding day itself And the whole idea was ceremonies surrounding the transfer of the bride from her father's home to her new husband's home. So there would be a sacrifice to the gods. There would be a ritual bath for the bride to be married to symbolize, you know, purification and fertility. And then the bride and groom would make offerings at the temple together to ensure a fruitful, prosperous future life. And then there would be another, like, the actual wedding feast at the father of the bride's house, and both families would show up for that one. But men and women would still sit separately at separate tables. And there would also be, at that point, the removal of the bride's veil, which signified the completion of the transfer to the husband's family. And at that point, she would then move into her husband's living quarters, and that was the actual part where it was legalized. So that was kind of the point where the, it, you went from like bride and groom to husband and wife, legally was stepping across that threshold. And the final day was called the Epalia, which was the day after the wedding ceremony when gifts were presented to the rel- to the new couple. By relatives and family and friends and kind of formally brought into the home. And a lot of the times common gifts would have been, you know, jewelry, clothing, perfume, pots, furniture, like basically stuff to set up your new home and new life. So kind of a a post-wedding bridal shower. Awesome. One big differential in ancient Greece would be Spartan
0: marriage, though,
1: because as per usual, the Spartans did everything a little differently. Mm. So, this. Sp- like, sound-, uh, <laughs> sound effects? <laughs> Who needs a soundboard when we have Margot? <laughs> so, Spartan marriage lacked that, like, pomp and circumstance and ceremony that you would see in, for example, Athens. So Spartan women would be, like, ritually captured. That's uncomfy. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, then she would be dressed as a man and have her head shaved. And then she would be laid alone in a dark room. And then the sober groom, he, he is not drunk for this, he has to be sober, has to sneak in, remove her clothes, and carry her to the bed. But men were required to sleep in the barracks because, you know, you're Spartans. So he would basically show up, sleep with, like, have sex with her, and then leave to go hang out in the barracks. And this process would continue nightly. And there would basically, there there were times where the couple would keep doing this for so long that they would literally have a child together before actually, like, Hanging out in the daylight?
0: Why? Why is she dressed as a man? First question. And then secondly, like, why?
1: Okay, uh, so there's, like, speculation on this and, like, different reasonings. But what I could find is basically spartan culture right you have all the young men sleeping together in the barracks like pl- like actually sleeping but they would also definitely be like having sex with each other um so basically m- chain like to get him used to the concept of having sex with a woman that is why she had to have her head shaved and be wearing men's clothing and be like alone in a dark room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh Spartan marriage was wild. So that was basically
0: it it was um like l- Yeah, it, wait, so like so like he's literally like not been around women since being a, a child
1: yeah yeah exactly like because he's essentially like been right like if you're a Spartan boy you are being trained for battle and you like sleep in the barracks and are like being trained by other men so and you again are like all of your like most of your like relationships are with men and sexually you are like like you are having sex with other men so this was about like basically easing him into the idea of sleeping with a woman
0: okay do you
1: yeah yeah so that's listen the spartans were very interesting it i mean if it makes you feel better at least in most of greece right as we've talked about the girl would have been like 12 when this is all going down whereas at least in sparta uh the ideal bride was like at least like Eighteen, 19-ish, because you know, right in Spartan culture, it's all very, like, you must be strong, self-sufficient, like, full adult who is fully developed.
0: <laughs> That's good, I guess, but you're still, like, capturing her in the middle of the night, shaving off all her hair, and taking her clothes, and then leaving her in the dark for some man who she doesn't know to come and have sex with her.
1: Yeah, I mean, I didn't say it was great. I didn't say that living in Sparta would have been fantastic. But, uh, I don't know. I feel like if if your options are that, or hello, actual 12-year-old, like, we, you, we are giving you to this man, like, as a present. Anyway, so that kind of remains pretty par for the course. Uh, the Romans did something quite similar to what you would have seen in, like, the Athenian version but perhaps a little bit older because it was say, it was still the same idea of the young woman would be promised to the groom by her father so again it's very much like your dad and my dad had a chat and we decided like they decided that we are going to be married and for the wedding to take place um, hypothetically you could have the bride and groom's consent but realistically it was the two fathers who would be consenting to it for them uh this could obviously be a little bit different in later marriages right like if a widowed woman wanted to marry a man but that's like if we're talking about first marriage the woman's consent does not matter whatsoever (laughs) and yeah hypothetically the youngest marriageable ages were 14 for men and 12 for women um again, like, that typically you weren't necessarily going to get married right at 12. And to have your actual wedding ceremony, the groom got to choose the wedding date, but he couldn't just choose any day of the year because you had to pick one that was, like, auspicious and lucky. So June was actually the preferred month because it was the month of Juno, who's the goddess of childbirth and marriage. So when it came time for the actual wedding the wedding would take place at the bride's father's house and the bride's hair would be covered by a wreath and a veil and she would have a yellow hairnet because yellow was supposed to be like the it it was um associated with lares so you know you're getting the, the the protection of the gods right and she would have her hair all done up and typically the bride and groom would also both wear roses like little kind of garlands or little capes made of roses and the other thing is that while the bride and groom right they might have like kind of these fancier things all of the guests at the wedding wore the same clothes as the bride and groom because you wanted to prevent evil spirits from identifying the wedding couple. So, you know, nowadays, if you show up to a wedding wearing a white dress, like, wow, 0 out of 10. Whereas in ancient Rome, it was like, yes, thank you for wearing the exact same thing as me, because I don't want the evil spirits coming on my wedding day to curse me.
0: I don't want to be cursed.
1: Yeah, people had a lot of... uh, concerns about you know like you don't want to you don't want to like rub your good fortune in in the face of the spirits because they might come for you and basically at that point you would have the flamen dialis and the pontifex maximus presiding and you would need at least 10 witnesses to make sure that you you know had, had a good number of people who saw that yes the marriage did take place and the bride and the groom would share a uh, like like a little cake made out of spelt. So like the... You know, like an ancient grain. And this was about... You know, right? Bread is supposed to symbolize prosperity and fertility. And you would light a sacred torch as part of the celebration. Which was again about fertility. And there was also likely a sow. Like a female pig would be sacrificed. And at the very end you would have a large feast with again more you know cakes and grapes and apparently there was a special cake made with grape like with the juice of grapes and again we have the kidnapping because by evening the groom would pretend to take the bride by force from her mother's arms And this was so that the household spirits would not get angry because you don't want the household spirits thinking that the bride has abandoned them. So you need to play out this like kidnapping ritual. Yeah, yeah, I don't love that. But I think, you know, in ancient Rome, the belief is also that like the only valuable bride was a virgin who had to be like ripped away from her family because you know she doesn't she doesn't want to leave so as this happened the tradition dictated that the bride had to like yell and scream and cry out as she was like abducted and dragged to her new house and once the procession basically reached the groom's house the groom would go in first then the bride and once she was officially taken into the husband's family then she was now protected by their household gods and essentially that is how it would end and then the couple would enter the bedroom and everyone would you know let them go and consummate the marriage so I think, you know, it's it's again this idea of like the ideal bride is like happy that she's getting married but also slightly terrified because, you know, she is supposed to be this virginal young woman who has dutifully lived at home with her mother and father and is scared to go and start a new life. It's a a fun time. You also had Norse weddings, which were quite different. Um, Basically, marriage was seen as a legal contract, like, again, as it was in other places for inheritance and property relations and you know, this idea of kind of creating a pact between families. However, there, at least from what is written in the sagas, it does seem that, you know, in the Norse society, the young people did have more of a say than they would have had. It used to be these implications that, you know, you want the bride and groom to like each other and get along and that sort of thing. But basically here, the prelude to the marriage would be the groom and his family negotiating with the bride's family, you know, about dowry and that sort of thing. And basically, the wedding was the actual ritual of this process, because it's the first public gathering of the two families, and this would be a feast that would go on for several days. Anything that was less than three days long was considered kind of like, oh, you're skimping out here, like, oh, you're a bit bit tight-fisted. And you had to have guests to witness that this process had been followed, and there doesn't seem to be a lot in the sources that we have about how a wedding might be related to the gods. Um, There are like, you know, some some things that have been written down, like there's depictions of Mjolnir being placed in the bride's lap. So there's this idea that they're maybe asking Thor to bless her. And Freyr and Freya were often called upon when it came to love and marriage and relationships and that sort of thing and basically there's also there was a tradition of new brides getting kittens as gifts (laughs) because a uh you know having having cats was very important to um you know as a To to have around the farmstead, basically, to catch mice and rats and stuff. And it's also because Freya, who's like the goddess of love and marriage, had a chariot pulled by cats. Yeah, so new brides would get kittens. This is my favorite wedding tradition. I want so many kittens. All the kittens. Yeah, I call Belle my, uh, my Viking wedding cat because we got her gifted to us like two days after we got married so it was really cute um but yeah and then after all that feasting it seems like the couple would be led to bed by witnesses carrying torches Um, and the idea of the torches and all the witnesses was that you know it's it's showing that this is like above board legal marital relations um you know like you're not just like sneaking off to bed just the two of you in the dark because then that's like oh are they having an affair are they are they fornicating (laughs) but then in the middle ages we start to see a like huge shift in all of these rituals right because now you have christianity coming into the mix in europe and that really changes around what it means to get married and what a wedding looks like because basically by the right like if we're looking at whether it's Greece or Rome or the Norse or like most most societies had these quite elaborate wedding rituals but In early Christianity, and like, especially in the Middle Ages, there was not really a lot of rules around that because Christianity did not at the time have very strict rules about weddings. So for example, couples did not need to marry in a church. They did not need witnesses. They did not need to get permission from their families. Literally, all you had to do was say to each other that you are married. Like, you say, I marry you. I marry you. Married. So we have records of people who got married like at the pub, at a friend's house, on like the road, in bed. They're literally already in bed together and then they're like, want to get married? Yes, I marry you. I marry you. Married. And you didn't hypothetically need witnesses because you had God as your witness. And I mean, essentially that's... What would happen? And, you know, again, the ages for weddings were, you know, you could get married legally um, at 12 for women and 14 for men. But again, you know, you um, as, as the Middle Ages go on, as we've spoken about before, these these ages creep up and up and up. Until, like, for the most part, people would, um, you know, get married in their early to mid 20s, you know, outside of, like, the aristocracy where it's like, you were betrothed (laughs) as a baby. There was also um, having sex, did create a legally binding marriage, or at least it could. Consent to marry could be given verbally but there was no like specific formula you just had to say like yes i marry you or i agree to marry you or we are married now and the other thing is a marriage did not necessarily have to be consummated in order to count so as long as you both had the consent basically that you are married to each other that that was what made you married and It was also the fact that if you were an engaged couple, you know, like we talked about before, if you gave someone the ring or, like, publicly made your intentions clear, then if you did have sex, you would have created a legally binding marriage. Now, obviously, this wasn't everybody, like, plenty of people did choose to still have these, like, wedding, you know, ceremonies and feasts and that kind of thing, but it wasn't required and it wasn't, like, super formalized. Um, And if you look at a lot of, you know, especially medieval paintings, right, of weddings, a lot of the time you cannot pick out who the bride and groom are. Because, again, there weren't these, like, elaborate rituals anymore. It was just, hey, like, we're getting married. We're gonna, you know, our families are throwing a feast. Everybody come over and, like, we'll set up tables. And, you know, nobody's wearing special clothes because, again, it's not seen as this, like, a ritualized thing yet so people would just wear whatever they had that was nice and then they would exchange their vows or rings etc um, it, um, you might want often it wouldn't happen in the church but you'd maybe want to be close to the church for like extra like added blessing power but yeah it was literally just like you agree to get married you're wearing some halfway decent clothes and then everyone just like drinks and eats and parties and like that was the wedding however this is the whole thing right where when you didn't have that kind of a party there is a issue of we don't necessarily know if you're married or not because we don't have witnesses or a ceremony or anything like which becomes a problem if you know a man and a woman are having sex and then she gets pregnant and she says yeah we're married you said that you agreed to marry me and he says no i didn't and skips town and then everyone's like well we don't know if we should like track him down and be like no you have an obligation to you know your wife and child or if it's a like yeah you never agreed to marriage so you technically don't have any obligation to either of them and it becomes a real legal problem so you do start to see both um like secular and religious authorities stepping in uh so in 1215 at the fourth lateran council the church's stance was that you it, it was outlined as an official sacrament in 1215 so from that point on there are actual like rules so you need witnesses you need to you know get a priest involved etc um, and it's also around that time that we start seeing you know secular courts coming up with with rules for this so in in England for example in 1217 there was a warning that no man should Quote, place a ring of reeds or another material, vile or precious on a young woman's hands in jest so that he might more easily fornicate with them, lest, while he thinks himself to be joking, he pledge himself to the burdens of matrimony. So basically, they're saying, dude, you can't say to a woman, yeah, I'm totally going to, like, let's, uh, we're married now. We can definitely have sex and then just, like, skip town. Like, no, you cannot, you can't, like, give her a ring and say that and then try to back out later uh the other big change that we do see in the medieval period is that it's at least hypothetically based on mutual consent because again especially like with christian marriage in general it was seen as an agreement between the the couple and with god as their witness so you I am not saying that people didn't arrange marriages in the Middle Ages. However, you couldn't do the, like, kidnapping shit anymore. Because the whole point was that both of you were on board 100% with this. Now, again, that's not to say, like, there wasn't pressure from family or that families didn't still, like, arrange marriages for you. But you... Like, more and more we see, you know, this idea that, no, like, both the bride and the groom have to be adults who consent to this. And it becomes even more so after uh, the Fourth Lateran Council, because again, now that it's a sacrament, it's like, okay, you both need to fully agree to this. Fun fact, wives also had the same conjugal rights as their husbands, so, you know, people... Basically, both the husband and the wife were owed sex from their partner. So it's not just the man who could be like, it's time it's time for the sexy times. No, the, the wife also had the right to have sex and have good sex. And fun fact, women could ask for annulments if their husbands were impotent. However, they had to be careful because... To verify that the husband was, in fact, impotent, there would often be, they would call in a prostitute as an expert witness to verify whether or not he was actually impotent. This is
0: also the period before that, like, switch happened where we started thinking of men as wanting sex more than women. At this period, it was still that, like, women were the deviant who wanted to, like, women were the ones who were, like, insatiable and wanted to have sex all the time.
1: Yeah, which, like, I mean, like, biologically, it makes a lot more sense. <laughs> I mean, you know, men have a, like, biological limit,
0: whereas, you know,
1: women, you know, bio- like
0: going yeah. And going and going and energize your bunny.
1: The limit does not exist. <laughs> but, yeah, if you want to look at, like, the actual ceremony again by the late middle ages we do start to also see um more rules around this and it does become more formalized and this is when we start to see kind of the shape of what we would think of as like the modern western style ceremony so you would have to read the bans, uh, which is for three sundays the couple's intention to marry was publicly announced and it was done so, A, so people can find out about the celebration, and B, if they had any objections, they had the opportunity to voice them. So there wasn't like the speak now or forever hold your peace line at the wedding, but it's like, well, you've had three weeks to come forward um, and tell people, you know, if if um, if if there's a reason that they can't be married. And reasons you couldn't be married would be things like, actually those two are too closely related as we talked about in our previous episode or um, actually that man is already married to a woman like two towns over <laughs> lives in his attic he got married
0: in Jamaica her brother just showed up
1: yeah I mean it's a real, it, that, that was a real problem Um, and it was again like yes brides would wear veils but typically everyone was always wearing some form of veil or headgear. Like, if you were a... Res- well, you know, some kind of thing. You're wearing a, a something. You're wearing a hat or a veil or a shawl or a, a tall, pointy, hennin. You know, headgear. Just wearing something. You can't go around with your head uncovered like some kind of a hoe. <laughs> you want everyone to be like, that's the village slut. <laughs> <laughs> But, yeah, I mean, you would basically just wear your nicest clothes. You would wear your veil. You would, you know, go down to the church. You have your rings. The rings get blessed by the priest. You say your your vows. You put the rings on. You then have the big party. The end. And, you know, again, you have big feast time obviously this gets much bigger and grander and fancier if you are richer and it becomes less and less fancy if you're poorer but like the same general structure remains yeah and i think basically um we see roughly that same structure going through the early modern period um the i would say the big difference that happens is of course the protestant reformation so in most cases, you know, instead of um, being a sacrament, that meant that, like, in in Catholicism, like, up till today, right, like, divorce is not a thing. You can get an annulment, but an annulment, you have to prove that the marriage was never valid. So, you know, you could, in the Middle Ages as well, you could get an annulment if it's like, oh, like, I found out, as we talked about before, like, well, I did some digging in the archives and I found out that my my husband and I share a great, 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 great grandparent. Therefore, this marriage was never valid in the first place. Or, you know, if it's a situation where it's like, we actually, you know i was I was held against my will, like I was held at at sword point and forced to marry this person. It's like, well, okay, then it was never valid, whereas a lot of um Protestant and like what would become different Protestant denominations allowed for divorce, so that was like a big scandal in a lot of Western Europe for people um and the other big thing is like attitudes towards marriage in general kind of changed like it became seen as this like that it was also like more of a like spiritual calling and there's this whole idea of like the the marriage and the family are like the backbone of the society and that like a good marriage is the good foundation for the country and the community and stuff whereas in the middle ages like marriage is like yeah that's nice but like it's second best because like you know the ideal of course is to be celibate as christ was so if you could become like a monk or a nun or a priest that was like goals that was the ideal whereas marriage takes on this much more like yes this is the the like best thing you can do in a lot of again i'm generalizing there are there's a whole bunch of different Protestant denominations and I can't get into every single one of them, but that's like the broad sweep of it. Um, and the other thing is, of course you see more and more, more, and more regulations put on marriages in terms of like legality. Right. So it's like, you need to like different things with like what ceremony counts and you need to have like an officiant who's who legally can perform this and reading the bans, um, the and and in certain cases, you did still have places that would allow you to do things the old way. So the big one that people remember nowadays is uh, Gretna Green in Scotland, because in England in the 18th century, they got a lot more strict about, you know, reading out the bans and having parental permission and all that kind of stuff, whereas Scotland still kept the like essentially medieval rules, which was... As long as the two people consent to be married, they are married. So that's why, in so many like Regency novels and Victorian novels, right, that are set in England, it'll be like the couple elopes to Scotland because there they literally just have to agree yep, we're married, done, and you don't need the family's approval, basically. And uh, Gretna Green was like a, like a, place right on the border of Scotland and England so you could go there very easily if you were from England and wanted that as an option so that's essentially what weddings look like straight up until Queen Victoria messes it all up by being like hey let's have this like ridiculous giant wedding cake and also I'm going to have my like giant white dress and a billion guests and a thousand flowers and then everyone's like Wow, let's do the same thing, and now, you know, it leads into what we have today, which is just a three-ring circus. But now I'm going to hand it over to Margot.
0: Okay, so yeah, I'm mostly going to talk about, like, sort of legal issues that come up for people trying to get married in the New World, and um, some sort of, like, general marriage practices from the Americas so pre-contact and like you know during early contact or whatever um for indigenous people um my context and research sort of lies on the east coast um which is where you have like the Iroquois and Algonquin communities um these were mostly nations that were in terms of like getting married and um, like parental lineage were matrilineal um, and marriage and these sorts of things were controlled by women. So um, a marriage was not seen as, and I think we talked about this before with the fertility episode, marriage was not as permanent as it was in the Christian world. It wasn't something that was like this eternal bond forever. If you like eventually didn't like somebody, you could just be like, okay, yeah, I don't want to do this anymore. Especially if you were the woman in that party. Um, So it was still like uh, mostly... um, a bond between a man and a woman who were going to have children but the really important bond there was the children that the children were what would tie clans together or families um and so like right you had within the various nations you would have these different clans um that were sort of like larger family units and you couldn't marry someone from within the clan that you were a part of normally um obviously like all these rules aren't hard and fast but it was a pretty strict taboo to not marry someone within your clan and that would be within your mother's clan um and There would be um, ceremonies. They were mostly ceremonies of moving into a living space together. So whether um, that was moving into the like longhouse or um, if you had like a permanent house. like in the 18th century, Cherokee started developing. You know, they had more like permanent settlements, um, and you would have a a house house uh, in the way that we think of it now. Um, this property was the woman's in the marriage. So a, a woman would get the the property, she would control the property, she would control most of the personal property, everything that was needed to sort of like sustain life within the house would be hers, um, and the husband could bring like his personal property if he had like clothing or hunting equipment or things like that. Those would be his, but he he didn't have a claim to children or like, immovable property that came with the marriage. Um, And if, for whatever the reason, the union was dissolved, um, normally this would be a thing that was decided by the woman of the party that she had just, like, had enough of him, and essentially she would just put all of the stuff outside of the house, and he they were no longer married (laughs) and he had to take his stuff and go back to uh his like family of origin um and if you were living in like a longhouse, right this was you would move into the um the wife's family's house um and like in a lot of societies here it was multi-generational housing of some kind or another um In Iroquois, it was like they had the longhouse set up, so you would be moving into the family house of the wife. Um, Yeah. Uh, This became really important and sort of contentious as um, Europeans showed up and did all the colonizing. um, Because, again, children were claimed like the the claim of children was the mothers and the children would inherit the like nation and language and all of that of the mother and so if a white trader a european trader uh married into iroquois or algonquin or cherokee whatever um what have you Society, right? If he married an indigenous woman, then in the view of that indigenous nation, the children were part of their nation. They were not European. Um, And this was an issue in what becomes the US. Um, It was also sort of contentious in Quebec, um, especially because of how France saw their colony how their colonial and quote unquote civilizing mission um, existed unlike the early english colonists um, france really had a, a, a mission of it was a of different kind of settler colonialism they really were like trying to settle and colonize so Right. France would send a bunch of settlers and their idea was that they would f- francify essentially the indigenous population of a place. So if they could get indigenous women to convert to Catholicism and marry French men and take on French names, then the children would be French, they would be good french catholic citizens and that was really the mission of new france it wasn't so much to come in take over the land and like eradicate a population as you see more you know in like the massachusetts bay colony uh but more to just integrate and and assim yeah and assimilate because it 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 was a, a their view of creating a colony was to create france like many frances all over but that was populi- populated with you know indigenous people of that area um, but that they had become french there was this idea that you could become french um so it was more of like a, a cultural genocide <laughs> Which uh also not great, but like that was a that was a big thing and and this idea because of this, there is this idea that there was like much more intermarriage in Quebec especially um, in New France than there actually was um, there's this idea of that like New France was a colony of métissage that, there were all of these French men marrying indigenous women. And then like everyone, all of the Quebecois were like Métis of some sort, but that's really like the actual records, especially because these were marriages that were overseen by the church. So they're meticulously recorded. Um, A majority of like indigenous lineage that French canadians in general sort of can claim unless you're out west and like actual actually part of the metis nation which if you want to listen to our louis riel episode or read um max max's book um he he goes into a lot of like how that's a totally separate thing um but in terms of quebec it's something like i don't know like a hundred women max are, like, recorded as being... I mean, it's, it's like, a tiny, tiny, like, 12% of um, marriages were actual, like, French men with Indigenous women. And um, I don't think any in the other gender directions So there's, like, no French women recorded as marrying Indigenous men um a majority of marriages in Quebec were people who both originated in France and then their children were born in Quebec and then they married other people who were born in Quebec um so it's it's very very just like european origins um and then this tiny like 12% of the, like, ancestors of, like, the modern um, like French Canadians were ind- indigenous women. Um, so there is this, like, myth of metissage that exists um, that wasn't super real. <laughs> um, and it's, it's also a really common idea uh, in the U.S. as well. There's this idea of, like, oh, well, 14 generations back there was a grandmother who was Cherokee and so I now can claim this like indigenous identity and it's just not an accurate depiction of what was actually happening. Um, There were white traders who married Cherokee women and people the children were then raised in the Cherokee Nation but the the actual number in terms of like larger population percentage was so low that if if you're from like North Carolina or Oklahoma and you have like i don't like your family's been there for generations and generations like yes you probably have some ancestor like an ancestor like 14 generations back who might have been Cherokee, but the the claim that a a white person would have to um indigenous identity in that situation is like tenuous at best um oh,
1: like I also have a question because I also thought there was like doesn't it also matter that like if you are raised within like a particular indigenous nation or not,
0: yeah, so that's the other thing is i mean of course there's always um in our like, sort of modern Euro-American identity framework is very based around genealogy. Um, but in terms of actually being part of a culture, um, the requirements for that are that you identify as being part of that culture, but also the other people who practice that culture accept you as part of it. Um, so it is a, a tandem relationship and that doesn't exist in these situations. So there's this um really cool book. Um there's actually a couple of them. So the one that focuses on Quebec is called Distorted Descent, Distorted Descent. Um and it's particularly about this idea of like modern contemporary alive today people who have this French Quebec Québécois identity um who have this one like there's like these 13 marriages that happened in like the 1600s that everyone is like oh well i had you know i there was this iroquois woman who converted to catholicism and changed her name and so i have metis lineage and it's the the actual iroquois people are not you know, like no one in the Haudenosaunee Confederacy is like accepting you as like having part of their culture. Um, 12 generations and one person does not an indigenous person make. So that's, it's a really fascinating, um, like phenomenon. Uh, it's called race shifting and it has a lot, there's a lot of political ramifications because of it. Um, and there's another book, the title I have lost, but I can put it up in the show notes, um, is about how this is happening, especially with the Cherokee nation in what is now the United States. Um, it's a really, really fascinating thing. And it happened because of these like differences of marriage practices. Um, in the 16th and in the sorry the 16th 17th and 18th centuries um the united states government also tries very hard to get a lot of indigenous nations to start recognizing patrilineal descent we talked about this in the fertility and early childhood episodes it has a lot to do with um in a marriage who holds property powers um the u.s gets really frustrated with this whole like matrilineal power dynamic um they really don't like it they want it it, because of land being held in common don't like that idea it makes it a lot harder to take from people um So yeah, that is going on. There's also um, other issues of uh, marriage legality in the United States because of, um, and in like colonial America, because of ideas of race um so there's also the whole issue of people who are held in bondage so enslaved people got married and there were also free people of color um so people who were descended from slaves and are are now free uh, right um getting married and there was not a like universal Sort of legal framework for uh, enslaved people getting married, or even free people of color getting married, um, but especially if they were marrying an enslaved person. So, if you were, if both parties were enslaved, often the marriage could be legally recognized if they had consent to marry from the person from the slaver so um sometimes that would be recognized sometimes if it it wouldn't be legally recognized in certain areas but you could use it as sort of a bargaining chip to ensure that people were sold together or that families were kept together or that like one person couldn't be sold you know that could be used as a bargaining chip even if it wasn't legally recognized um in some areas it was legally recognized in some areas if one person was enslaved um right so there's a a whole system of case law where if a free man married an enslaved woman he she could not be sold without his permission Um, the only issues there that children took on the status of their mother so if the mother was enslaved then the children were enslaved and if um, like a free man uh, married an enslaved woman her children were enslaved and he couldn't claim to have like legal rights to them Um, they were owned by the slaver the white slaver Um, but it got even more complicated if a free woman of color married an enslaved man because in the english system of law uh, women were dependents on their husbands so Right. They didn't have a legal claim to themselves or to their husbands. So there's um, a really fascinating case from the 1720s in which... So this really fascinating case um, in which Jane Webb was a free woman of color and she married... Yes, so uh, she married a man whose name is only listed as left in the records. Um, but he was enslaved and she got permission from the slaver, right? Um, Thomas Savage, who claimed to own him. Just gross, but whatever. Um, so she she marries left. Um, and later is trying to prevent him from being sold and to have so their children she has children the the children are free people because she is a free person but she's trying to claim um, the right to her husband that like he can't be sold without her permission and this becomes very complicated because of sorry because of this issue of like coventry and like whether or not a woman can claim legal status over her husband um and essentially it turns out that no she can't uh and this case goes on for like 20 years and is like she like keeps trying to like appeal things and Get essentially like buy the freedom of her husband and is unsuccessful. Um, and essentially, as like as chattel slavery becomes more and more restrictive um, throughout the eighteenth century, um, the power of free women to like re- purchase either purchase or sue their husbands to freedom and also like claim their children as their own um, becomes more and more contested it becomes more difficult for people in these like mixed status marriages to claim their spouses or to even legally get married for enslaved people to even legally get married Um, it's it's based on region Uh, there doesn't seem to be like any sort of national system of recognizing this, um, especially when you have states where slavery is completely illegal, um, and states where slavery is just, like, South Carolina, where the chattel laws are the most aggressive, um, it becomes very, a very contested situation and very difficult to sort of get around and that's why um especially in places where any sort of marriage between enslaved people isn't recognized you have these systems of like secret marriages um that are recorded in like oral histories or in there was a system of recording things in blankets and quilts and in woven textiles um and people after the Civil War are trying to find their children and wives and husbands, um, if they had been separated uh, by the people who were holding them in slavery. It's it's a very complicated and inhumane system. <laughs> it's just just awful and bad. Uh, but yeah, that does that does affect a lot of um, the ways that weddings actually happened because they would be done in secret um, and like without a lot of pageantry or perhaps even without people living together um, in the same quarters because of how the quarters were doled out um, on plantations. So that becomes really complicated. But for free white euro western people uh yeah it's a similar phenomenon of weddings looked essentially the same until the 19th century when the white wedding dress comes over before that people mostly wore if they could get a new dress or a special dress they wore a lot of blue and yellow because of the symbols of those colors um of like honesty and loyalty and things like that um yeah certain patterns with certain if they could get like a a patterned fabric or an embroidered fabric certain flowers would be woven into it because of what they symbolized um but yeah it was mostly weddings were not huge affairs um there would be just sort of general like whatever the fancy food of that particular season was Uh, mostly people got married in the summer because the weather was better um, and it would take place in a church per usual um, and the real like complex legal questions were again when it was these mixed marriages and how the state was actually going to recognize them or not recognize them as the case may be nice excellent (laughs)
1: yeah that definitely gets very um very very tricky, very complicated once you have you know the idea that some people are not actually full human beings who have any kind of rights whatsoever, but I think that's kind of the, the whole point of this episode is just looking at you know how how these ideas of you know what is a marriage and what what is a wedding and how that changes over time because you know we go from like we've had everything from you know elaborate three plus day long rituals to agreeing to get married literally while in bed together to you know as Margot finished out with like these legal battles about you know the status of who is and is not allowed to get married and how much legal standing does that have and i think i think we done it we did it we're gonna see you all next time with talking about setting up house and settling into married life Uh, and the week after that we're gonna talk about what happens if you choose for or you know for whatever reason are not able to get married
0: Stay safe, make good choices. I'll
1: see you next time, Bye bye Thank you for listening to the Baba Yaga Project, and as always, thank you to all our patrons for making this project possible. Please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and on our website for the most up-to-date happenings. Also, please consider supporting us on Patreon. It really helps us continue the project and expand in some really exciting ways. There's also Patreon-exclusive merch and content.